Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, I just have a quick question before we jump in here. Are you, like me, a habitual intro skipper? I bet you are. Some of you at least are. And you're used to listening to Suncast and skipping forward. Did you know that I do all of the intros bespoke? Some of the outros are canned, but many of the intros and most of the outros as well are custom made for you. Like, did you know that we have a listener survey that many of you have taken? And it's given us so much insight. If you haven't taken it, then you're missing some stuff in the intro. And I'd encourage you to listen to them every now and then. But you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. Takes a couple of minutes of your precious time. And I'm so grateful if you'd do that. All right, here we go with the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, all right. Welcome back, Solar Warriors. It's Thursday, and I'm honored that you're joining me for another amazing look into the life and career progression of a solar founder and CEO. So what do the Chicago Bears, United Airlines, and the solar industry have in common? Well, the particularly quick mind and feet and contribution of today's guest. That's right. Eric Peterman, the CEO of GRNE Solar, has such a transformative and interesting story. Eric and I got to know each other prepping for the Midwest Solar Expo panel that you've probably already heard. If you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one all about O&M. At any rate, Eric impressed the heck out of me, and I had to get to know more about his story. And it is such a classic and interesting grassroots story about grit, determination, overcoming odds, and sticking to it. You're going to love this episode, so I won't keep you from it. But if you do love these kinds of stories, then I'd encourage you to check out the nearly 300 founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, if you've been following along, you should really check out our career summit. It's not just for those looking for a job, but those who are also trying to help increase your own company's hiring practices with a lens on diversity, inclusion, and equity. You can find it at suncastcareersummit.com. And for a limited time, you can still sign up for our Evergreen Pass at the conference rate of $50 and watch all of the replays. But wait, I'll do you one even better because I believe that we've delivered such amazing content. If you pay for the Evergreen Pass and don't get value out of every penny of the $50, I'll refund you 100% of your money within the first 30 days. So see, you've got nothing to lose. Just like clicking on this episode took a decision and setting aside time, so does everything in life that makes us better. For now, I'd like to help you get better. So tune in and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as promised, we are going to have fun today digging into the discipline that it takes to choose a career path intentionally 
to be a performer at top levels in multiple organizations and bring that performance into the solar industry. We're going to do that with my new friend, Eric Peterman from GRNE Solar. Eric has an industrial engineering and a management science degree from none other than Northwestern, not too shabby. And he started GRNE back in 2012. But Eric has such an interesting story that we're going to unpack today all about how to go pro in all areas of your life. Eric, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. I'm excited to be here. I find it fascinating. You seem to have always challenged yourself as an individual. And I was in FCA. I was an athlete all my life. Was good friends with a lot of athletes in college. And it's rare to find an athlete with a real professional degree, an industrial engineering degree at that from an elite college like Northwestern. What do you think made you choose the path that you chose, both from an educational perspective and the technical expertise that you sought, despite the fact that you had a clear focus on athletic enterprise? It's funny that you bring that up, Nico. The high school that I went to was known for its academics. So I had a great base before entering college. I've always been interested in mathematics and engineering and uh, being accepted into Northwestern. They actually requested slash mandated that I enter the kind of the general arts, the communication school, which is where most athletes go. And it's kind of the straightforward path. I reluctantly accepted as we entered the career at Northwestern, but then my freshman year, I said, this isn't working for me. I, I want to be in engineering. That's more what I uh, have an aspiration to be. So I actually had to go to my football coaches and get them to sign off that it was okay for me to enter the engineering school. They uh, reluctantly agreed on their end, but they were more of Saturdays are the important days in college, not necessarily Monday through Friday. Being a football coach, that was their priority. And they were worried that going into a career of engineering just from schooling perspective might take away my focus from football. Well, it makes me wonder, when you were 10, 12, 8, what did you want to be? What did you aspire to? When I was that young, uh, it was Michael Jordan that I looked up to, and it was a professional athlete that it was really what I was aspiring to be. I love basketball, love to play basketball. I actually love basketball more than I do football, but the opportunities were there for me to get school paid for and to get a great education. So it was the football path that I ended up choosing, but I've always had a knack for understanding how things work and figuring out how to make them better. And that's kind of what drives me. Both my parents were entrepreneurs as well. Both had their own businesses. So obviously I have that running through my blood as well, wanting to be a leader and lead my own business, but also just trying to figure out how the world works today in specific areas. And then how can we make it better or more efficient? That's really what has driven me since I was a young child. We'll talk a bit about how football has influenced your life and career in a minute, but you know, ultimately we're listening in because we care about how and why you decided to dedicate your passion, your knack for process improvement and strategic planning to climate change. What got you exposed to clean energy and how'd you decide that that was where you're going to ultimately turn your gaze? Yeah, another passion of mine is certainly sustainability and in uh, multiple aspects, you know, getting the most out of uh, out of any aspect of your life, whether it's equipment that you use or your impact on the environment or a process that you use, is it a sustainable process? And that's something that I've carried with me as well for 
as many years as I can remember. Getting into the real world or the working world, as I graduated and started looking for careers, I got synced up with a business partner, Jess Baker, who we started this journey or this process with GRE out of an opportunity that we saw for monetizing sustainability, renewable energy, different aspects of making renewable energy for the world. So making it sustainable, but also monetizing it into a business as well. So it started with wind, to be honest, Nico. We had an opportunity to make renewable energy from the stack effect. We have a patent on a technology called the uh, energy producing building. And what that is, is a wind technology that funnels hot air up through a tunnel using the stack effect, producing an airflow and spinning a turbine to produce renewable energy for a site. That was how we got started. Monetizing that proved to be difficult and we saw an opportunity in solar. So we actually made a pivot with uh, the opportunity that was coming in solar. And that's what really spurred us on and really has uh, carried us forward to today. How'd you meet Jess? I was going to church uh, trying to figure out what my next step was in life after football. And the, one of the pastors that I was hanging around with at my church uh, is actually uh, Jess's brother-in-law. Hmm. So I was talking with uh, Jake, who was the pastor, and Jake was saying, hey, I got this brother-in-law. He's got this idea for some engineering application. It, it deals with wind and renewable energy. I think you two would really like each other. And would you be interested in just having a conversation? So Jake was with uh, Jess Baker, who's now my partner, over Christmas 2011, and we did a Skype Skype meeting, and that was the first time I ever met Jess. We hit it off immediately. Jess told me a little bit about his background, being from Lincoln, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. having a background in just um, learning how things work mechanically. And with my background from a business perspective, uh, we really complement each other really well. And from there, December of 2011, we we decided that we were going to pursue this energy producing building, this wind energy technology. We filed a patent, we started a business and uh, 2012 is kind of what launched GRE solutions at the time. And then as we evolved into a solar focused company using the the DBA GRE Solar. Does GRE stand for anything in particular? When we started the company, we had kind of a holistic approach to renewable energy. So we were looking at uh, GRE solutions as uh, global renewable natural energy solutions. So it's an acronym that kind of looks like green. So we thought it a little bit clever, but it's uh, now just a difficult four letters to say in a row, GRNE. I love it. The cleverness of your 20s and how it can hamstring <laughs> you moving forward. I've had that happen. I've seen it. I've seen it happen far too often. All of the things that you're describing, I'm sure, piquing the interest of anyone who uh, understands how difficult it is to file a patent, how difficult it is to start a business, how difficult it is to find a partner. So something I wanted to unpack early, obviously, we've, re- we've referred to this thing in your life. Uh, that, that probably a lot of people over uh, or conflate as uh, being sort of the biggest piece of your career uh, since it is can be sensationalized. But you grew up wanting to play professional sports. Michael Jordan was your hero. You grew up in Illinois. You went to one of the hometown academic standards, right? Not only the hometown, but Lord, in the United States, Northwestern is considered one of the top schools in the nation and the world. And you saw the opportunity as it materialized, I'm curious, how and when did it materialize for you that you might have the opportunity as a standout wide receiver at Northwestern to live your dream and, and go be a Chicago Bear? 
To be honest, it, it really snuck up on me. As I mentioned earlier, in college, I was uh, majorly focused on my studies as an engineer. And even though I did get the blessing from the coaches after twisting their arm to let me pursue a career in engineering, it didn't mean it was any easier than what was to be expected. I mean, it was uh, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hours on the academic side just to to meet the standards of Northwestern engineering degree. So a lot of what I focused on in school, yes, it was football, but I would say the, the major priority was doing well academically. You know, with that, the Lord blessed me with a great athletic career as well. We had some trying times at Northwestern on the football stage. We, we were decent my freshman year, uh, went to a bowl game, and then my sophomore year, in between my freshman and sophomore year, our head coach actually suddenly passed away. Uh, Randy Walker had a heart attack and died um, in between my freshman and sophomore year. So we we were kind of thrust into the spotlight. And Coach Pat Fitzgerald was uh, one of the youngest coaches uh, ever to be um, elevated to head coach and uh, in the, at the collegiate level. And the first year or so was a little bit tough getting up to speed. But it wasn't until my junior year that um, you know I, I played as a freshman. I started as a sophomore, and then uh, you know start, started obviously my junior and senior year as well. But to be honest, I was so focused on my academic career that when I started getting calls from NFL agents saying, "Hey, uh, do you have an agent yet? Or can we, can I represent you? Or I've been talking to uh, the New England Patriots or the Chicago Bears or whoever about you," it was not expected. I did well on the playing field, but I, I never kind of uh, understood that it was a reality that, that I would have to go through around my junior year that, hey, we need to start thinking about what's life look like after college? What's look like life look like after college football? There's, uh, there's another level of, uh, of football that we can potentially pursue. So it, it kind of surprised me. You know, I was all Big Ten as a junior, and then that's really what got things started with all the discussions with agents and NFL teams and workouts and everything of that nature that, Hey, this is real. And then going into my senior year, we had an excellent year. Uh, I think we won nine or 10 games. My uh, senior year and went to a bowl game, played Mizzou in the Alamo bowl and just a great experience and great exposure. And then throughout that, that season was really a lot of interest from agents, a lot of interest from NFL teams and then through the draft process. You know, there's a couple of things I want to point out, uh, just thinking about process and planning and the ability that one gains. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and common yeah, misunderstandings about athletes and the path that they follow. As an athlete, I've, I've seen this struggle with friends who've come out of the athletic career and, and struggle to find themselves. But what's true about athletics is it, it cultivates an incredible amount of discipline, but it also allows, in my view, allows you to cultivate resilience and flexibility. One good example of that is there's only one spot for a quarterback on a team. <laughs> there's a couple of folks that sit the bench and hope that they get a chance to get in. And you were a high school standout quarterback. How did the experience of going into college and switching to wide receiver uh, inform the way that you now think about building a team and your own leadership style. Yeah, that's a great point, Nico. I would definitely echo 
that as well, that so many lessons are learned from sports that can be used in other aspects and other areas of your life, especially team sports, having to uh, work with coaches, having to work with other teammates to achieve a common goal. There's uh, learning about how to win, learning about how to lose and how do you respond and there's, there's so many, I could talk for days on lessons learned from sports that I now apply in, in my life from a personal aspect and from a business aspect as well. But how does that change where we're at today? The time management skills that are really necessary, especially for a collegiate athlete, to be able to balance your sport, to be able to balance your studies, to be able to balance a social life to be able to balance getting what you, your body needs in terms of nutrients and rest and everything else to keep up with all the other aspects of your life. But uh, to back to your original question about you know coming in as a quarterback, uh, yeah, I, w- I came out of high school as a quarterback. I had options to play at a lot of different areas, um, uh, was highly recruited by Notre Dame, Air Force, uh, many of the Big Ten schools, a couple of the Ivy League schools as well, I actually went to Northwestern because there was a great opportunity for me to play quarterback. Uh, the plan was that I would redshirt my freshman year because Northwestern had a pretty good quarterback at the time who was entering his fifth year uh, redshirt year. Uh, Brett Bazinet, who played in the NFL for uh, a few years as well, a good friend of mine. Um, so he was uh, there when it was my first year at Northwestern. And um, I was looking forward to learning from him and then taking over after his career ended uh, at Northwestern. But there was actually a need uh, for receivers freshman year when we were in training camp. We had a couple guys go down with injuries. A couple guys uh, who got in trouble with some uh, off the field activities and there was a need for a receiver. So I said, hey, I'm up for giving it a try. And uh, once they got me into the receiver room, they never let me back out. And it was uh, it was a great opportunity just to get on the field as a freshman and learn a different aspect. I had the physical skills to be able to do it. It was more of the receiver skills that I had to learn and had a lot of great coaches along the way that helped me get to where I needed to be. But what I learned from being a quarterback absolutely helped me in the receiver room and absolutely helped me understand the holistic picture of football, but also uh, many of the lessons that I take with me today and how I live my life today. Yeah. You know, and I pointed out that um, you were able to sign as a free agent after that wonderful experience at Northwestern for uh, uh, an organization that you grew up, I'm sure in some ways idolizing the Chicago bears. And with that comes a bit of uh, what I perceive as just general misunderstanding about the life of a pro athlete. Is there anything that you feel like you constantly have to sort of back, uh, walk backwards from uh, around your pro uh, experience um, as you now live a, a very successful entrepreneurial life? Like folks tend to focus on, I'm sure, the football, but what's, what are the misunderstandings, misconceptions about that? Yeah, and I've experienced a lot of them as well. I think a couple of the biggest ones that come to mind is that pro athletes just have all the money in the world. And for a a very small number that, yeah, that's certainly true. But for everybody else that plays professionally, um, yeah, there's decent money to be made. But, um, you know, if you're middle to low guy on the totem pole, then, um, you know, it's no different than any other career. You're you're getting paid a a decent amount. Um, But I think people see professional athletes and they think gobs of money, 
fancy cars, humongous houses, you know, those type of things, I think, uh, are what's kind of comes with the role or the territory of being a professional athlete, but not always the case. And certainly not the case in, in, in my situation. I remember rolling into training camp, um, as a rookie for the bears and yeah, there was, you know, Brian Erlacher and Devin Hester and Jay Cutler who were driving their Maseratis and Range Rovers and, uh, you know, their souped up BMWs and everything else. And I rolled in with a Hyundai Elantra that, uh, needed an oil change and, um, the air conditioning works sometimes. So it's, you know, there's people, there's different people in the locker room at different levels. And that was one thing that I always had to contend with is that, you know, once you make it to that level, there's a certain persona that people think you are. And there's obviously people that came out of the woodwork, old family members, old friends that that always want to be your friend once they start seeing your name in that in that uh, at that level. Um, but I would say that's the biggest one. Uh, but then also, I think people don't understand the amount of work that goes into achieving that level. Certainly from a physical aspect, people can understand that you've got to be in top physical shape. You've got to be able to work out. You've got to be able to take the hits and and perform on the field. But I think what a lot of people don't see or understand is the amount of meeting or intellectual time that goes into preparing as well. Um Throughout the week, you might be on the field practicing, you know, maybe two hours a day. You might be in the weight room uh, one hour a day. So that's three hours. What are you doing with the other four or five hours of your day? Well, most of it is made up of meeting time. You're meeting with your individual positions. You're meeting as a team. You're meeting as an offense. You're meeting as special teams, going over the plays and understanding different roles and different scenarios that might come up. And I think that's really either overlooked or undervalued is that there's a lot that goes into being a professional athlete on the mental side as well. And I think that's one thing that people don't always see or appreciate. They just see, they just see you show up on, on Saturday or Sunday and it's game time. I think that is a remarkable takeaway and insight. Uh, I love that you said it's uh, overlooked. I would say it's overlooked and undervalued. But when I look at the rest of your career and how you decided to sculpt the actual career that you would have after a couple of years in pro ball, it's very clear how you were able to carve out and manage building an organization. What you just described sounds to me, if you, if I didn't know you were talking about the Chicago bears, you may be talking about any corporate environment I've ever experienced. That's something that I hope for my children. I hope that they can have that sense of accomplishment, uh, that, I feel sports can infuse not only of the confidence to overcome whatever barrier uh, or achieve whatever goal you set before yourself, but that they learn how to work in a team. And I feel it's one of the things I I tend to filter for is if someone uh, is a candidate and they've been an athlete and in any way, some sort of a a standout athlete and and have done a sport for more than a couple of years, uh, it says to me that they have a stick-to-itiveness, right? They have that grit that is required, especially in a startup to, to make it. And I think that that, for me, it's no surprise, you know, your ability to come out of, uh, of football and make quick ascension at United Airlines and then at financial advisory service uh, before deciding to ultimately pull the record and follow the steps of your parents into farming GRNE. Is there anything that you would highlight about the the other jobs that you had along the way to GRNE that you feel sculpted who you are now as a leader? Yeah, there's all kinds of learning points that have built who I am today, um, those stepping stones along the way. 
I think first off, just continuing on the football theme and, and as we move into the business career, I had tremendous coaches and leaders along the way. Um, my high school coach, his name's Coach Ken Leonard. He's still coaching today. He's, I think, one of the most, I think he set the record for the most wins in Illinois as a high school football coach. He's got over 300 wins. And he was a man of faith as well and really helped me stay accountable and, and bring me along and taught me that there's more to life than just football and, and really helped me spur my, my faith life as well. Moving on Northwestern with coach Fitzgerald, he's one of the greatest leaders I've ever been a part of. And he leads from example and from understanding. And instead of being a top-down approach saying, this is what you're going to do. And this is the way it's going to be. He listens to his players. He listens to his leaders and then makes decisions based off of that. And that's something that really struck me as, and something that I try to model today um, with, with my team is what, are they saying on the front lines and what can I learn from, from our team members to be able to shape how I lead our company. And then finally with the bears with Lovey Smith had a great relationship with Lovey. Um, Lovey still coaching now at the collegiate level. But what I learned from the bears was eventually when I was released from the bears, um, Lovey kind of took me aside and said, Eric, you've achieved more than we thought you would. You've made it past cuts that you weren't supposed to make it past. And let me just tell you that sometimes you can do everything right and it just doesn't work out. And it was just a matter of playing the numbers game with you can only have, you know, 53 man roster and there's only so many spots available. And because there were some draft picks ahead of me, uh, they ended up letting me go, um, but then brought me back on the practice squad. So I was able to to continue with the team on the practice squad, but then eventually ended my career when I got injured in a preseason game, tore a ligament in my thumb. But um, those three people, um, Coach Ken Leonard, Coach Pat Fitzgerald, Coach Lovey Smith, throughout my career in football taught me so much that I still take with me today. And I was so blessed to have those people in my life. But then as I move into what I call the, the real world or the working world, working at United Airlines, um, I was a revenue management analyst and got to figure out how much to charge for airfare and how many seats to overbook and all that. So uh, that's what those people do. So if you want to get mad at somebody because your flight's overbooked, then go find the revenue management analysts at United or Delta or American and yell at them. Um, and it was great from a, from an entry level job. It got me, uh, introduced to the working world. Um, it just, it was a little bit stale for me. I think it was exciting at first and it was something new. Uh, but then I just wanted more. I didn't want to sit in a cubicle. I didn't, I didn't want to put all of my effort into something that I didn't see the fruits and rewards from. Um, so that's when we started GRNE. We had the opportunity and I wanted something more out of my working world. And that's, that's kind of what took me there. Um, and then with my time with Arete, uh, the consulting firm that I spent time with, I really enjoyed the opportunity to understand how our clients worked and how to make their processes better. So what we would do is we would go in, get an understanding of uh, what they do on a day to day or where can we improve their bottom line um, and then go to work and figure out what we can do as a as a third party with industry knowledge to, to help them from a business perspective to be more profitable and that's certainly something that I bring with me today with GRE is looking at what we do on a continual basis and that continuous improvement mindset that we're doing really good. Uh, let's let's do better. Or we've got a deficiency here and we know it's a problem. What do we what do we need to do to make it right? Or what do we need to do to make it better? 
one of the mottos that we have is uh, make your best better. Just love the idea and the mindset of continuing to, uh, to, to push forward on that. And I must give credit where credit's due. The make your best better is from Marie Burquist, one of our marketing directors uh, here at GRE. And she's, uh, she's always uh, preaching that motto to the team. I love it. That's a great, it reminds me of a story from Winston Churchill. I don't know if you've heard this one, but the brief version is he had a, a speechwriter who sent him a telegram and without reading it, he sent it back to him. And he said, is this the best you can do? And the tell in speechwriter, you know, very frust- flustered, does some edits and he sends it back. And without looking at it, Winston Churchill responds, is this the best you can do? So on and so forth until the speechwriter essentially rewrote the speech four times. And Churchill sends it back and says, is this the best you can do? And the speechwriter flustered says, yes, it's the best I can bloody do. And then Churchill simply responds over the telegram. Great. Then I shall read it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, yes. that's the, that's the epitome of make your best better. And that's amazing. yeah, it's a great, I love that story. Uh, it also, uh, we recently had Nick Enger on the show and, uh, I said, Hey, in a kind of crowded space, uh, why does your company exist? He said, there's always room for the best. Love it. Yeah. That's great. Well, you guys are tackling some, I guess I could ask the question, uh, the same, right? It's not as though you're the first solar company in Illinois, uh, although you may be one of the few, uh, early entrants in Nebraska, uh, what's the specific problem that GRNE is solving right now? Why and why now? In the, at this point in your life, is this the best vehicle for you to accomplish the, your mission of sustainability? Absolutely, yeah. So w- when we got started in this, there was there was little to nobody in the Midwest that was doing this, and we looked around. And as I mentioned earlier, when I was introduced to solar, it was because of what I had heard that was happening on the West Coast, and then eventually on the East Coast. And then we said it's only a matter of time before it comes to the Midwest. So. Uh, we're going to stake our ground and say, this is where we're from. This is where we live. These are our communities. And we see an opportunity here. We want we want to see that renewable energy that's being developed on the coasts of the U.S. to come to the Midwest. So we started when we started solar before solar was cool in the Midwest. And we just built as the as the market continued to grow. Um the first project we ever did was on Jess Baker's house. We'd never seen a solar panel before. We didn't know what it was, what it looked like. We ordered a pallet of them. They showed up and we figured it out. And we started playing around and figuring out how how they, how they go together, how you monetize it, how it plugs into the inverter, how it makes power. And it was just a learning experience from day one. Um, and going from there, as the market continued to grow, you know, more opportunities became available. Uh, we, we started with two employees, just myself and Jess. Now we have offices across four states. We serve the entire Midwest and we have over 50 employees. So it's just been an opportunity to grow as the market grows. And we started with residential, then commercial opportunities came. Um, we, we've been doing very well in the CNI space and then eventually into the utility space as well. So it's it's uh, it, when we started, as I mentioned, there were little to no companies around. We've won, we're one of the longest standing companies in Illinois and Nebraska for sure. And then um, having these opportunities to do these uh, significant projects with private companies and utilities has really put us on the map and and helped us continue to grow and and have the impact that we've had in the market thus far. Yeah, and for anyone who caught the uh, episode that we published. Back in July, uh, Eric and I 
were both on a panel for Midwest Solar Expo, where you know, his company has become a thought uh, a thought leader around O and M, uh, a division that they're growing at GRNE. I would encourage you to go check that episode out. We won't dig into the ins and outs of O and M here because because Eric and I did that on that panel really well, and I would encourage, I would encourage you to check that out because Eric has some great thoughts about how to be a regional leader in a world where uh, sort of national footprint is the soup du jour. On that note, however, as a solar company, it's you know not lost on any of us. There are major companies like Borrego, New Energy Equity from the coasts who are, uh, I'll say, shooing in on uh, your turf. Can you give us a sense of the flavor of being a Midwest company uh, compared with the West Coast and East Coast companies? What does it take to thrive in the Midwest that perhaps is different? the other uh, extremes? The large developer certainly has a role and a place. They're going to get their business for sure. But the Midwest is just a different beast. There's uh, people from the Midwest want to support people from their own communities, from their own locality. And we've heard time and time again that, especially from the agriculture customers, that when you know somebody from a large developer from California either rolls up in their Mercedes that has a California license plate or their rental car, um, it just doesn't have the right feel to them. And then when we roll up in our you know, Ford F-150 that needed to get washed a couple of weeks ago, they're like, hey, this is my guy. So then it just sets that commonality with them. And, you know, the fact that, you know, hey, I drove 20 minutes down the road to meet you. I, I live here. I pay taxes here. Um, you know, it, it gives them more of a sense of confidence that they're talking to somebody that, that um, is more on their level, I think, and that they can communicate with. So I, I think that's one aspect of it. And then people like to support local. Um, and I think that's just kind of a common theme throughout the U.S., um, it definitely, there's a role for the developers and the large player, national players to, to support, uh, development throughout the U S and there's, there's synergies to be had as well from, uh, companies like GRE and the EPCs and the local market in partnering with the developers. And we've certainly used that model as we've grown as well. Um, we've worked with a lot of national players that, um, needed help locally to support either their O and M efforts or, uh, you know, building their projects that they're developing. I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually something I wanted to key in on is I imagine you find yourself as a local expert becoming a target for, especially with the quality reputation you have, subcontracting work. How much of a part of your business is that? And then how do you walk the fine line between, well, we're a subcontractor and we're also a competitor? Yeah, that's a great point. We've done a lot of work as an EPC, and I would say our, our main focus is EPC, engineering, procurement, and construction, meaning that we'll design it, we'll procure the material, and we'll build it for you. That's kind of our specialty, and that's what we focus on. We've had the opportunity to operate in other capacities, and actually our scope continues to grow of what we can do because, going back to a couple points that I made earlier in the discussion, is what what do we see happening in the industry or in the market, and how can we make it better? So we've continued to build our team, which is why we have so many heads now, 50 employees, because we've got a sales team, we've got design engineers, we've got permitting experts, we've got crew leads, we have installers, we have electricians. And as we grow, you know, we might learn something from a project that says, hey, we subbed this work out last time and it didn't go well. So what can we do to either bring them on internally so that we can manage the quality a little bit better 
or um, just take it over. And and we've kind of done that in a couple different areas, which we've got why we have specialty team members now within our uh, company. And same thing with the developer role. We've had a couple of projects that have worked great. And we've uh, had success working as an EPC under a developer. And then we've had some opportunities that didn't work out so great. And, you know, we've kind of learned from that and said, hey, uh, we've had these experiences in the past that will help us be better suited for end customers as a developer. So we can play that role or to continue to make ourselves better as an EPC and a better partner for end customers or developers as well. So it's, I know it's a long winded answer, but it's, it, it's definitely been a learning experience in us to continue that improvement and making our best better by uh, continuing to figure out what can we do and what can we bring in house to make sure we can keep the quality under wraps. The Suncast Career Summit kicks off on September 1st as a first-of-its-kind virtual event exclusively focused on promoting diversity and inclusiveness in the clean energy industry. This event is for job seekers and hiring managers alike. You can engage with industry leaders, attend workshops tailored to practical advice, learn specific strategies in group and one-to-one settings, and develop a game plan for success. Learn more and recommend a friend at suncastcareersummit.com. Hey there, commercial solar warriors. If you listen to this show, then by now you're very familiar that Extensible Energy's DemandX load flexibility software helps close more deals and faster by shifting to lower time of use rates and saving your customers 30% annual demand charges, all at a tenth of the cost of battery-based solutions. But did you know that Extensible also has a new solar partner loyalty incentive program that rewards your sales team with a generous sales bonus? Well, for now, until the end of the year, when you complete just three successful DemandX installs, your sales team member will get a $2,500 check or vacation voucher for when we all do get to travel again. This program also applies to your past customers who already have solar and could benefit from DemandX extra savings. Just contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast to become a DemandX reseller and get all the program details and benefits for yourself. Again, that's extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. In-house is certainly in a state that has been on lots of people's minds this year and last year as well. What could you tell me about the Illinois solar market? What makes it so interesting? And perhaps what other markets do you see uh, becoming territory where you guys are seeing more more movement, more action? Certainly. I think most people are familiar with the term solar coaster uh, across the solar industry. And I think it's never more evident or prevalent in Illinois, uh, the ups and downs that we've had here. Um, in 2016, there was a, a major need to fix the RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standard. And we got legislation passed in December of 2016 through the Future Energy Jobs Act that allowed us to move forward the efforts of renewable energy in Illinois. When FIJA was passed, it came with an SREC buffer for supporting the Renewable Portfolio Standard. An SREC stands for Solar Renewable Energy Credit. It's a solar incentive that helps monetize consumers, and the utilities will actually pay out the SRECs um, from their RPS fund 
because it allows them not to have to front that capital for development of their own assets. So if you're a utility in Illinois and you're mandated to produce a certain amount of renewable energy, you have a couple of choices. You can either build a solar field yourself and fund it, or you can incentivize homeowners or businesses or other solar development, uh, most likely for a, a lower capital cost, to spur development and then um, purchase those renewable energy credits so that you can add that to your portfolio of generation to meet the standards. So when FIJA was passed in 2016, it's taken a couple of years for the programs to get rolled out, but there was a huge influx of SRECs and monetary incentives in Illinois. And that's when we tried to keep it as quiet as we could, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't possible. All of the the country came to Illinois, your Borregos, your Forefronts, all of your developers came to take a part in the new incentive that was available. So we had, uh, as I said, when we started, we were doing solar before solar was cool. And now solar was the new fad or the new, the new cool thing to do. And everybody's here in Illinois and it was so incentivized that there was over demand for the supply of SRECs that were available. And to that point, you know, community solar development, there were a thousand projects submitted for community solar and the SRECs available could only support 100. So 10%. So there are 900, 900 community solar projects that were submitted from developers, companies that had done their due diligence, spent you know thousands of dollars of getting interconnection approvals and everything needed. 900 products that are still sitting on the sideline waiting for SREC funding. So that's you know why I mentioned early on with the solar coaster, it was it was slow moving or, or not moving at first. We got Fiji passed, we've got SREX, and then everybody's here, and you've got so many more new friends that have come in from outside of the Illinois geographic territory that are now developing solar. And then now we're kind of at a stage where what's next? And I think that's on everybody's mind. Um, there are still SREC funds available in the residential market. So if you're a residential homeowner in Illinois, now's still a great time to go solar because your SRECs are still available. But anything above a 10 kilowatt system is currently waiting for the SREC funds to be uh, reappropriated. So um, any commercial development, any community solar development, um, we're, we're now kind of in limbo as we wait for new legislation to pass and re-up on the SREC funds available for those projects. Sounds like uh, Illinois should be a prime market then for lead generation folks that are trying to figure out how to help the residential market grow. Yes, there's yeah. a lot of opportunity there for, for sure. Yeah, indeed. Well, what about uh, the rest of flyover country? I mean, you got to drive over Iowa to get to your uh, your partner's home state of Nebraska. Obviously, Missouri had uh, a lot of activity back 2015-2017 timeframe. Where do you see the growth happening in the Midwest? Uh, And uh, we don't want to leave out the frozen tundra (laughs) up in (laughs) Minneapolis. I mean, the community solar market there obviously also had a similar boom period as uh, as Illinois. I I would argue uh, Illinois had a similar boom period as as Minneapolis, which is still going pretty well with with uh, community solar. Yeah. So what we've tried to do, we operate heavily in the Nebraska market, the Indiana market and some others where there are no incentives. 
other than the federal tax credit. And eventually it's going to get to that point for everybody to the point where, you know, these incentives aren't aren't guaranteed forever. You know, the ITC has a step down. The SREC market isn't intended to last, uh, you know, forever. So solar has to get to a point where it can compete with other generation sources in an open market or in a free market. So we've seen opportunities to sell in other areas where it's not based on incentive. Yes, Illinois does great right now because of the SREC incentive, but we've also done well in these other markets, uh, Nebraska, Indiana, and some other places where, you know, there's, there's just the federal tax credit and people are still going solar. What does it take? What's the differentiator to win at grid parity in the United States in that case? What does it take in terms of selling in those markets? Yeah. It's really understanding what's the motivation of the customer? What, why do you want to go solar? Is it for uh, purely monetary play? You just want to save money. Is it for an environmental play? You want to do your part to help in, in the environment and um, reducing your carbon footprint? Or do you have other uh, motives? Is it uh, you don't have great electricity supply because you're in a rural area? Do you need solar and a battery to make sure that your, your irrigation pumps or um, your, your farmhouse has electricity? You know, it's really, I think, understanding what's the motivation for the consumer? Why are they interested in solar in the first place? And then shaping uh, an offering or proposal that, that meets those needs so that you can both win, both the consumer and the company. Yeah. Do you find that traditional marketing works in that scenario or is it very relationship and referral based? Traditional marketing does not work. That's probably the easy answer. Uh, we've and we've tried a lot of different things in those markets and no success. It's it's really based on the relationship. Like you said, Nico, it's it's. Uh, connecting with those in the community. It's doing a project and then getting the neighbor to do the project because the the first product, the homeowner won't stop talking about it or the farm won't stop talking about it. Hey, look at my new solar array. Hey, look how much money I saved. Um, you know, they put it out front and center on their, on their property so people can see it when they drive by. So it's word of mouth referrals mainly. And it's just being present in the community, you know, having a, a, a visual, perspective, um, either from an office or from your trucks being out and about or doing community events. That's really how we've seen penetration into these markets that are the flyover states. Good old blocking and tackling. <laughs> exactly. To bring it home, to bring <laughs> it home. That's exactly right. What are, so uh, you talked a bit about Baznay as a quarterback who I perceive was probably a mentor for you at Northwestern. Who, what were some lessons that you take from mentors like Brett in your life and that you now pay forward to your team? Yeah, I think certainly the coaches that I've had as well that I mentioned earlier that that kind of um, led me through the developmental career or the developmental years of my life that have certainly paved the way for who I am today. And then I guess one mentor that I would be remiss not to, to discuss would be my mother. She is just a phenomenal person and um, really helped uh, mold and prepare me for who I am today. She's uh, most of her life, um, you know, single parent. Um, we had myself and two younger brothers. So she brought up three kids, worked multiple jobs, taught me what it was to work hard, taught me what it was to succeed and taught me what it was to make the most of what you have. And so it, it's, it's the examples that I've got from coaches and from leaders like, like my mother that have really kind of paved the way for who I am today and to, to never, never stop and always continue to persevere no matter what the situation is. Cause we've, 
we've we've had some very low situations um in my upbringing and my career and um just keep pushing and it's going to be better on the other side what a great uh homage to the hard work that motherhood is and to point to the fact that she was an entrepreneur you got a lot of your entrepreneur chops from uh, around the dinner table, I would imagine. And I love the, um, you know, how to succeed, how to work hard and how to make the most of what you have. You're the oldest of three boys. That's correct. Wow. I have three boys myself and I often wonder what the oldest of my three, uh, will look like if he's anything like, <laughs> if he's anything like you, I'll be a super proud father. I can tell you that much. Uh, and I, as, and that, I guess to say, uh, your mother must be awfully proud of you as well. Uh, but it's not all, uh, sunshine and roses for entrepreneurs, as you alluded And there are hard days. I'd love to know, is there a dead end, uh, a failure that you feel really made a difference? It pointed, it it pointed out the right path for you that you'd want to share with us. Yeah. I don't really like that word that you use there, Nico, dead end. Um, (laughs) I think a dead end just means that you need to find another way. And, um, you know, if you continue to persevere, there should never be dead ends. There should always be other opportunities or other paths that, that you can pursue. When we were young in our career with GRE, we were part of a couple of accelerator groups, the clean tech open organization. We had, uh, participated in some of the accelerator groups for entrepreneurs, great organizations, and really helped us network and connect with individuals and kind of shape the direction of our company. So we learned through the opportunities with the clean tech open and other entrepreneur accelerators, how to pivot. And that Mm. was a key word that they would always keen on is you've got a great idea, pursue that with all of your heart and all of your passion and all of your resources, but be mindful enough to know that if there's a point in time where that's not going to work out, then you need to pivot or you need to find another opportunity. So anytime you would come to a quote unquote dead end, that is what you would need to do would be to pivot. When we were going through the Clean Tech Open, we were pursuing our energy producing building at the time, uh, the energy column, the wind energy application. And it was through that process that we had chosen to pivot and to see the opportunity in solar. And we knew that there was just not much happening in the Midwest with solar and that we could certainly do well by providing that service to consumers in the Midwest. And that was one of the major uh, pivots that we made and that has really spurred our company on to, to what we are today. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I was listening to, I think, it, I want to say it was Tim Ferriss, perhaps interviewing Eric Ries. It may have been someone else recently. Uh, Eric Ries, uh, obviously, a lean startup book is kind of reached mythical status in our industry, that industry being entrepreneurship. And he defines pivot as a change in strategy without a change in vision, you know, and I'd never heard it quite put that way until that interview that I listened to. And for those who are curious, I'll, I'll link to a clip of Eric talking about that specifically. It's, uh, it's helped me think a lot with my clients about what it means to change direction. Often we can stigmatize the pivot and say, oh, well, (laughs) oh, you pivoted. That means that you failed. But that idea of a change in strategy without a change in vision, I think is really important. So thanks for enunciating that. Absolutely. I wonder in this, in a similar vein, do you have any advice for fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life? What might your advice be to the clean tech open class of 2020? Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned so much through, through those type of organizations and just through business experience as well as an entrepreneur. 
it seems really cool. And there's some really good memes and quotes out there about entrepreneurs. Oh, hey, you want to be your own boss? That sounds great. Now you can work, you know, 18 hours a day instead of eight, that type of mentality. It's, I mean, anybody that's in, in it right now knows, but it's, it's not easy. And I, and that sounds so simple and so basic, but it's so, so true. I remember when we started just having to do everything. I mean, you've got to set up a company, you've got to figure out how to cash flow. You've got to figure out how to do accounting. You've got to figure out how to pursue your strategy and your passion. You've got to build your team. So many things that just have to get done and not enough time or people or resources to do them. And how, how do you get it done? It has to get done, but how do you get it done? And, and struggling through those times, I think has really for the people that make it through, that's what really shapes them and gives them the strength that they have to push through. I remember, you know, when we were very early on and just started to go into the solar space, we had to get our certifications and then we're like, okay, great. We're ready to sell solar. Nobody was buying at the time. And what do you do as a business owner with a family and kids that have bills? How do you make it through? And it's it's really at that point in time when your back's up against the wall that it's kind of the make or break. And you've it, for me, that's really what spurs me to, to action. And, and hopefully if you're an entrepreneur, you're the same way. But it's praying. And I remember praying every meeting I would have and say, Lord, you know, if it's your will, uh, please help me close this deal so that I can uh, pay my mortgage this month or that I can make my car payment this month. And then every time we sold one, you know, the joy and uh, just the celebration. And I would, you know, call my partner, Jess, and say, hey, we got a deal closed and just uh, celebrating together. But it's it's pushing through those hard times and celebrating those small wins because that's what builds. And then you get to a point where it's you're just in the flow of it and you look back and you're like, wow, we've we've surpassed where we were six months ago, you know, praying for a couple sales. Now we've got too many in the pipeline that we've got to go figure out how do we how do we execute this work? So it's perseverance and it's knowing that it's, it's not going to be easy. It's just not. And you've got to figure out a way to get over the hump on the early stages. Starting a company is very similar to the, the birth process in general. Obviously, not only uh, humans, but in the animal kingdom, there's a process of being born that strengthens your muscles, right? For a baby, it's going through the birth canal it actually constricts, it forces the body to elongate, it forces the lungs to compress, it starts that process of breathing. For a baby bird to break out of that shell, of that egg, it is part of the process of beginning to strengthen your muscles. Uh, you can't jump from the nest until your wings have achieved a certain parameter that is sufficient to lift the body. And uh, I find that it's an overused analogy, but so many entrepreneurs jump out of the nest before uh, they've broken out of the egg, right? They'd roll their eggs straight over the side of the nest. So, yeah, I find that that's a similar caution that I have. A lot of folks will jump straight out of the gate hiring five people because they raised $5 million or whatever, 500000 in friends and family money. Uh, instead, instead of taking the time to figure out what needs to be done and where, where is my limit, how can I actually use our equity, uh, my human capital? to reach the absolute max limit, learn how to do it, and then know that when I hand it off, it's handed off properly with a good SOP. Um, yeah, so, so it's, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's you know building a company is not easy. I love the the very the simplicity that you bring it back to perseverance and pushing through the hard times, celebrating the small wins and getting into the flow of the work because at the end of the day it's the hard work that gets it done. Well, similarly, there's a lot of folks that are listening who want to follow your lead. They want to get into clean energy. Do you have any advice for someone looking to transition into the business? Yeah, there's certainly room. Um, we need as many people as we can get to continue to develop this market. And it's it's what I've seen in dealing with different opportunities is that, generally speaking, the renewable energy space has been pretty friendly. Um, I mean, there's there's uh, challenges and there's competition and all of that, like any other market. But um, I would say, generally speaking, there's been an opportunity to, to help and to grow the market uh, together. Um, what we've seen in the Midwest and specifically in Illinois, because of the, the just enormous growth and boom that we saw, there was a, one of my good friends and competitors um, coined a motto that was, we'll compete at the dining room table and on the roof. But outside of that, we need to help each other as best we can because there's there's way more work to go around than any of us can can physically do. And I think that's true of the country and the in the industry as a whole as well, is that in order for us to continue to grow and develop like like we should, we need to be all in for the greater good and for the the bigger picture and helping each other in any way possible to make that happen. I think for anyone who's not in the industry, just so that there it's clear, the competing at the dining room table is a euphemism for where a lot of the deals are signed in residential solar, just to be clear. So anyone who was wondering, like, are they having an eating competition? <laughs> it's uh, n- nothing, nothing like that. But I also do wonder, is there any tactical advice? What's working? How do people find opportunities? Where, where are opportunities posted? What are the types of jobs that you see most in need? Yeah, I would say look to your trade organizations as well. I'm a board member on the Illinois Solar Energy Association um, board, um, Solar Energy Education Association. We've recently changed our name, uh, but I know there's always opportunities to get connected on um, the national trade organizations like SIA, Solar Foundation. Uh, there's there's a lot of good opportunities out there to help network. And I would say the conferences too. Unfortunately, it's a little tough given the COVID situation right now, but I remember going to SPI for the first time as a volunteer. I went there to volunteer and to help. And the amount of connections that I made just from being there and talking to people, um, that's how you get connected. And I still keep in touch with the people today. So it's all about networking and continuing to, to grow your your presence in that aspect. It brings me back to just kind of that concept. One of my early internships that I worked, they had a competition over the summer as to who could meet the most people and network the most. And you had to keep a list and you had to get the person's name, their contact information and something that was relevant about them. And it became a competition. So obviously I I went all in on it and it ended up uh, winning the competition. But it really helped me connect with people and understand how I can help them and they can help me. And a lot of those people I still stay in touch with today. So it's it's getting that networking done either through conferences or through uh, virtual groups or through trade organizations, discussion groups. Um, any way possible to just get your foot in the door and then continue to learn and see where you fit best. And one thing I'll say too, and it's it's a major thing that we look for, is that um, anytime we look to bring somebody on, it's a two-way street. It's got to be good for us as the company 
and it's got to be good for you as the employee. And I would urge anybody that's looking for opportunities to make sure that you pursue that as well as that it's a two way street. Because if you join something and it's great for the company, but it's not great for you, that's not going to work out. It's not going to work out long term. And maybe you'll get some experience and learn something, but just keep your eyes open that it's what you want and it's what the company wants, because that's where success happens. Well, I love how you've been able to really clearly enunciate how you saw certain things like this opportunity to patent thermal uprise to, to atta- attach a different wind generation mechanism to the urban uh, environment. It lends to me a vision of a guy who not only as an analyst can help forecast where pricing needs to be, but someone who can look around corners. What corners might you be looking around in the clean energy industry? What do you think is holding us back? Where do you see us going? It's been talked about a lot, and I don't think we've cracked the nut on it just quite yet. But storage continues to be, uh, I think, the the hot topic or the coin term that, that has to continue to get rolled out. Um, and I think it's working well to some extent, but I think there's so much more that we could be doing as well. Not just from, you know, CNI or residential, but from a larger perspective, just in terms of our grid stability as well, working together with utilities and, you know, Solar only produces when the sun's shining on it, but people need electricity 24 hours a day in different areas. So how can we deploy what we can make and produce and generate into the specific aspects of when it's needed and where it's needed? So obviously that's something that I won't belabor because I know everybody talks about that. But I think it's interesting, too, to see kind of where the industry is going with continued consolidation uh, recently, you know, the acquisition of uh, Sunrun and Vivint and um, Unirac, I believe, just acquired Equilibrium on the racking perspective. And there's so many more examples that we could point to from that perspective if you look farther back. But I think as the industry continues to grow, really look at what does that mean for the companies? Why did they do it? What's their motivation? And what does that mean to you? If you're in the industry and what does that mean for your company? Because we're evaluating that right now. What what does the Sunrun Vivint acquisition mean for GRE Solar? And how do how do we position off of that? And I think we're still in the in the process of figuring that out. But ultimately, I think our first take on it is it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing um, because I think I won't speculate on the reasons why that it that merger or that acquisition happened, but I think there's going to be more stability from uh, from a large organization to service those folks that want to uh, have the, that big national brand box um, company. But then it's also going to allow consolidation and um, you know less companies competing at the dining room table, like we talked about earlier, or, you know, proposals that are sitting in front of CEOs that are making discussions. But you feel it's a bit of a watershed moment. The consolidation is about to happen and it's going to allow you as a regional player to have perhaps less intense competition from folks who are trying to sort of who are striving to become the Sunrun or uh, is that kind of where you're going with it? Yeah, I, th- I think so, Nico. I, I, I think it's still yet to be determined, but I do think that it will strengthen the industry and, you know, as co- people continue to consolidate. And um, I think it's just going to continue to strengthen the industry as a whole and it'll allow us to learn from it, it, I mean, we are certainly watching very closely to see what happens and then what can we learn from that from our business? And then what opportunities is that, um, allow for us as well. So it's a unique time, but, you know, we continue to see the consolidation and 
What does that mean for GRE Solar individually? One of the places that I and, and other leaders like yourself draw inspiration is from the wisdom of the ages. Uh, I imagine there are probably some uh, books that have influenced your leadership style, your mindset. Uh, perhaps they're on your nightstand now. Would you mind sharing with us some of the ways that books have taught you to be a better leader and maybe what books you recommend or give to others? You might not believe my answer to this question, but I'm actually not a big reader. Aha. What's sitting on my nightstand right now, Nico, is is the Bible. And that's that's really what uh, what I go to that. And then um, I think my emails would be my most next read thing. Um, but I, I certainly um, have have learned from inspiration from, uh, from the word and, and from other opportunities of mentors. Uh, but, but reading has not been something that have, uh, that I've really been keen on. Well, is there a particular place in the industry that you go for information? How do you keep uh, ahead of the, your peers on what's happening in clean energy? Yeah, I do subscribe to, uh, you know, a lot of podcasts and um, newsletters um, such as Suncast. And we put on a podcast as well called What's Up, produced by GRE Solar and um, things like Midwest Energy News and different publications that that will aggregate news sources. So I do, you know, I'll th- thumb through the highlights of the day. I get uh, I get those delivered to my inbox every morning so that I can see what's going on in the industry. Um, I've definitely uh, in the past been a big proponent of the Energy Gang, um, Stephen Lacey and the podcast that they've put on as well. Now, I would say it's here and there when I have time. I mean, I'm sure you know and any entrepreneurs listening, uh, running a business and running a family, there's not a lot of extra hours left in the day. Not a lot. Um, so I, I get what I can here and there, but it, it mostly comes from, from those different sources and skimming what, what seems to be important at the time. I appreciate that. I appreciate that answer. And it certainly does get difficult to squeeze in the extra time to have a habit of, of reading what can often be dense and intense material. I wonder, Eric, uh, is there a particular habit or a practice that has been consistent in your life and he's yielded what you perceive to be the greatest impact on your life and work? Certainly. Um, you know, I bring it back to just a simple term as well. And that's, you've seen, that's kind of been the theme here. One of the mottos, and, and to be honest, I, I believe it was from uh, Coach Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, is, um, is just the simple uh, acronym of WIN, W-I-N, what's important now. And so many times you think about, you've got this long to-do list, or you've got all these goals that you've got to go achieve. And you just get, you know, paralysis by analysis, or do you just get stuck in the moment and you don't really know what the next step is? And I used to think, well, all these need to get done. So it doesn't really matter which one I do first. They all got to get done. Well, that is never true because you're not going to have enough time to do everything that's on your list. And I fought that concept for so long. I thought, you know, I'll always have enough time, always get done what I can, not even close. So you really have to prioritize and bring it back to 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 try and win what's important now and figure out uh, how do you prioritize those key items? What what has to get done this hour? What has to get done before lunch? What has to get done before Wednesday? And make sure that that those are front and center and that it's the right things that you have on that list too. You don't want to be spending time on something that is not relevant in that moment. Um, so those are, that's, I would say probably one of the biggest tools that I have is time management and, and helping myself prioritize. What am I thinking about? What am I spending time and effort on? 
that and then obviously all the the gadgets and tools the uh the gmail the google drives the tasks the reminders your 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 iphone your iwatch everything else but we could geek out on tools for sure and that's uh, that's something i'm I'm sure i could go way down the rabbit hole with you on be a lot of fun but i for one am really glad i asked you that question which i nearly skipped over as a, a way to peer once again into the mind of one of the great leaders that you have been mentored by pat fitzgerald I never heard this acronym, What's Important Now, When. And in fact, when you said it, I thought W-H-E-N, and, uh, and I was glad to have you spell it out. It brought to me a recollection of a book that had a big impact on me, so I'll mention it here. I've mentioned it before. It's a book by Gary Keller, the guy that uh, created Keller Williams, called The One Thing. And if, uh, if you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend it, although you practice it very well. Uh, and the thesis of that book, for those who don't want to go read it, is what one thing can I do now by that by doing it will make all other things easier or unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And I find that filter to be really imperative for a leader. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great concept. I like that. And that was another kind of uh, along those same lines. Um, one of the mottos that we had while at Northwestern is what's what one thing can we do today to make yourself a better football player? And it's just one thing every day. What can you do right now in this moment today to make yourself a a better football player, a better leader, a better employee, a better boss, whatever it is, what's one thing you can do today and just let all of the other riffraff fall by the side. There you have it. Solar warriors pick the one thing that's going to make you a better person and contributor to our industry today. Eric, if folks wanted to thank you, how would they reach out to you? How would they find you? Where was the best place they could, they could uh, connect. All the social medias we're on G- at Gearney Solar is usually our handle on all the, the different sites there. Um, definitely um, active on LinkedIn as well. Um, Eric Peterman and then um, GearneySolar.com is our website. Uh, if you want to reach out to us directly, uh, you can hit us up at info, I-N-F-O at grnesolar.com. We'd love to hear from you as well. If you have any feedback or follow-up questions or anything like that, if there's any way we can help the solar warriors that are listening to today's podcast, we'd, we'd be happy to uh, see what we can do to help you as well. One of our biggest mottos is education here mm-hmm. at, at GRNE Solar. And when people ask us, uh, what's the biggest hurdle that you have Um, and selling solar in the Midwest. And our answer is education, Mm -hmm. getting people to understand how solar works, getting people to understand that there is enough sun in the Midwest for solar to work and the incentives and how does it work financially? So that is kind of our sales pitch is the education play, but also connecting people in the industry. If there's anything we can do to help you either here locally or connect you with anybody virtually, we're happy to help uh, anybody that's listening today. Fantastic, Eric. Well, let's end today, as we always do, uh, with the bold prediction. What one thing beyond storage becoming super proliferated in the industry do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? When you pose this question to me, Nico, when we were preparing this, it was a couple of weeks back. And my answer was consolidation of the industry. And uh, the announcement of the acquisitions beat me to the punch on this. But I think you'll still continue to see more consolidation. And I think, um, you know, despite what what some may think, the momentum for the solar industry is too far gone to to, to be derailed. And it's going to continue. And it's how do we play a part in continuing that advancement? Um, and I think there's going to be new technologies as well that come into play. Uh, and that that was really our focus when we started GRE was mm-hmm. 
looking at it holistically, you know, there's, there's wind, there's biomass, there's solar, there's all kinds of different things that, that make energy. What's the thing that nobody's talking about? What's right. the thing that that's not available right now? And R and D is a big part of what we do as well. And trying to see what can we do to bring forward a new form of renewable technology that, that can help, help the industry. So hopefully there's an answer to that in the near future. So inspiring. Well, Eric Peterman, as these things unfold, we'll be watching them here on Suncast and chatting with you and other leaders like you about how they're making themselves into the world. Eric Peterman is the co-founder and CEO of GRNE Solar, one of the Midwest's fast-growing solar EPCs, O&M, and uh, installation companies. What an honor to spend time with you and learn more about your journey. Thanks for spending time with us here on Suncast, Eric. Thanks, Nico. It's been great. appreciate you having me on. And thank you to all solar warriors who tuned in today. That is such a refreshing conversation. I'm so glad to get to know you, Eric. Thank you for taking time to be on Suncast. And thank you, Solar Warrior, for listening, for persevering through to the end of this episode. Your efforts are rewarded with the value bombs that came from the lips of our guest today, Eric Peterman. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more at the blog on my suncast.com. I would encourage you, reach out to Eric and myself. You'll also find, as I mentioned, the social links for us there. We are always active on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I'd love to hear from you. What did Eric say that sparked your interest, that sparked your desire to continue down the path as a solar warrior and climate champion? It fires me up every single week to bring you these stories of real-life heroes in our lives who are building businesses that matter, and careers that change things. I do hope that you'll tune in every Tuesday and Thursday as we bring you our Tactical Tuesdays, two for Tuesdays, recaps of event sessions, and of course, these longer form Thursday episodes. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.